As an entrepreneur, the one thing I struggle with most is finding the time to do the important work that grows my business. But Belay Solutions co-founder Brian Miles has figured it out, owning a company with 700 plus people. Notice I said owning a company, not running it. That's an important distinction and truly owning it can only happen when you learn to delegate. Belay Solutions launched in 2010 when Brian and his wife Shannon both tired of working full-time for others. He'd been using a virtual assistant, and with the four-hour workweek popularizing the concept, he saw a need for a U.S.-based option that could do the things an offshore firm couldn't. In this episode, we talk about how you can offload the things that bog you down, whether that's to an assistant or your employees, plus how to find a good personal assistant and ways you can stop running your company and start owning it. Please welcome Brian Miles. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Brian, your path to creating Belay Solutions came from your experience using a virtual personal assistant at your prior company, which uh, where you worked, you didn't own. And from the story I've heard, she helped you manage a crew of a, a larger crew of workers, scheduling your appointments, and even helping out with some personal stuff. And then at one point, you and your wife both thought that there had to be other busy executives and entrepreneurs that could use the same type of assistant. So you decided to launch your own company, offering virtual assistance to others. What would you add to that startup story? A lot, uh, Tyler, <laughs> actually. Um, it, I wish it happened just as uh, quickly as you stated it. But uh, basically back in 2010, early 2010, my wife and I um, got to a point in our careers uh, where we, we just needed to make a change. Frankly, the idea of being an executive for a company um, and working for another company that wasn't my own was becoming less appealing to me. Um, my children at the time were two and five and I was on six to eight flights a week for travel and it, it was just killing me. It was killing our marriage. It was killing my dynamic at home with my kids and um, a nice paycheck just didn't feel like such a nice paycheck anymore. Um, parallel to me, my wife was working for a fortune 10 company called McKesson and she, um, her next role in the company was going to be more of a, a lateral move, not an upward move. And so we just kind of came to a place in our mid thirties where we pressed pause and said, what do we really want out of our careers? And, um, at the same time, or right around the same time, I was also reading a book, um, called made in America. It's a story of Sam Walton. And in that story, they basically explained that he actually opened up his first official Walmart when he was 43. And so here I was, I was 35 and, um, you know, this, this Sam Walton character that I had you know, known the brand of Walmart for so long and started to really admire how he you know, lifted the business of Walmart and realizing starting 43, I thought, well, maybe this is our time to start a company. And that's basically the conversation that we had for about two months, my wife and I, and it got to a place where she said, you know, I think I really want to make this jump with you. 
And for me, I was incredibly excited while nervous. Uh, I was also very excited because I saw her navigate incredible complexity um, really, really well in her, you know, in her job. So I, I saw it as a great teammate joining um, as we kind of joined together and, and really the summer of 2010, the start. And did what you, at that like, point, did you know what you wanted to do or was just like, we got to do something? I knew that um, after reading the four hour work week, I knew that I wanted to try and do something virtual, something that, um, you know, Tim Ferriss met, uh, listed, but all of his solutions in the book at the time were really overseas. There was not really a predominant um, domestic solution for virtual services in the country. There, there, there were starting to be a couple that were popping up, but I felt like our time to strike was pretty good. Uh, you know, the book came out 2008, 2009, and we started in 2010. There was one competitor, but how they approached the market was going to be different than how we approached it. And so, you know, it took us six months to lift. We did a lot of due diligence before we gave notice to our employers. We cashed in our 401ks and we used all of that, which was $160,000 for our startup money. And then we walked into our employers on the same day, October 1st, 2010, and gave our notice and resigned. And so we, we literally went all in on virtual. We, 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 we didn't know any other way to do this. And um, while super scary at the time, during the kind of the peak of the Great Recession, um, we just felt like this was the right thing for us to try. And if, you know, if it didn't work out, we were going to finish well with our employers. Hopefully they'd take us back <laughs> and, uh, we wouldn't have any regrets either. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting strategy is like whether you were conscious of it or not at the time, I think like finding something that is sort of a hot thing at the moment, you know, cause that four hour work week book, I think it took a little while. So probably yeah. about the time you guys were starting, this was about the time it was really starting to blow up and, and kind of right. catch fire and That's take, right. take a concept that is all of a sudden popular and find, you know, a different or better way to do it. So good, good job on that. Well, I, I feel like, um, it was definitely great timing and a lot of good fortune in that sense. Yeah. And then you got lucky with a tweet from Michael Hyatt, who's a super well-known <laughs> blogger. And that kind of like blew you guys up. But like, how yeah. else were you getting the word out about this new business? Well, um, we spent a lot of time on social media. And then the market where we first started was around churches um, in the United States. And a lot of churches are very connected with social media. And so and, and it was just so we're clear, you're talking about like religious churches, not like churches fried chicken, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A significant difference. Although I do like fried chicken. Um, I, we worked with churches early on. And part of the reason why is my job before um, we started this company, I built and renovated churches for a living for another company. So I had a really good network established there um, with Christian evangelical churches all over the United States and a great network of people that were influencers in that space. And then you're right. Seven months into our business, after being very niche, very focused, leveraging social media, because that's really all we could afford. Um, Michael Hyatt, literally, he signed a contract with us for our services and made one singular tweet. And my inbox filled up with sales leads from everything that wasn't a church. You name it. I had attorneys, physicians, CEOs. And I just knew that that was like an inflection point in our business, that we were going to leap into all sorts of leaders and today, now, you know, eight years later, we're in 25 verticals, uh, very deeply across 25 different verticals. You must have had to scramble to find quality people because it's really hard to find 
hard workers that are willing to work really hard for others and stick with it for a long time. Like that's, that's one of the biggest challenges I've had. And I want to talk about that a little bit more later, but sure. how did you, you have all this potential business. How did you find people quickly? How did you afford to hire these people quickly? And were you worried that this was like, it's going to get huge and then it's going to drop right back off because this tweet is going to disappear in a week. I wasn't worried about that because one, I was naive enough to assume that customers would stay with us forever. <laughs> uh, but besides that, um, I just knew we had something. I mean, I, in some ways, I kind of felt like we caught lightning in a bottle because when I when someone of influence like Michael Hyatt says something, and then all these people basically follow his lead and the, and trust him, and it becomes like a qualified sales lead. And the conversations that we're having, it was easy to ask them to the next step of signing a contract with us. I knew we had something, and it and it every vertical we moved into, every industry there was very little resistance. So I knew we had something to answer your question though, about how we find great people. Um, or it really wasn't that hard back then. And it still isn't hard today. And part of the reason why is because we've gone after a segment of workers in our country that have been marginalized by corporate America. So we target college educated stay at home moms and dads, with past business and professional experience. So we're going after people that corporate America technically doesn't want because they want less than full-time work. Hmm. And how do you yeah, find them? Highly qualified people would, that you'd be super proud to represent your brand. And so, you know, we basically just went to people we knew that were our friends early in the early, early days and said, hey, do you want to try this out? And surprisingly, they wanted it. So we thought, OK, well, there's something to that, you know, and now today, you know, looking back on it, we get about 2000 resumes a month right now. So we can pick the best, of the best. Our acceptance rate is better or less than what Harvard's is. I mean, we're really choosy with the people that come represent our brand. Cool. Uh, and now, so in the past eight and a half-ish years, you've built, you and your wife have built Belay into a pretty big company with more than 700 employees, right? Or are they contractors? The, the ones that do the work, so the assistants, the bookkeepers, the webmasters, they are contractors to our business. The ones that are on my team, my corporate team, my headquarters folks, those are all full-time people based here in Metro Atlanta, all working from home. And that's about 65, 70 people. Okay. So a little less than 10% are employees. The rest are all independent contractors and every single one of them are remote. Every single one. We do not have an office on purpose. In fact, I'm talking to you today from my home office. <laughs> hey, so am I. <laughs> all right. So, and that's, that's pretty much exactly how I've set up bike rumor, which is my cycling tech blog. Um, you know, my main business is everyone's remote. I'm in North Carolina. Zach is in Ohio. Corey's in Prague. And then we've got freelancers in UK and France, uh, Florida, Canada, and throughout the Midwest. And it works. But there's also something really magical about when we get together to cover the bigger trade shows and events, you know, the back and forth, sure. the small talk, the sharing meals, it kind of, I, you know, I really love it because it helps us grow as a team. And sure. I feel like we lose a lot of that by not having more physical proximity to each other. Plus, I've talked to a lot of other solo entrepreneurs and it gets kind of boring and lonely not being around others all day, every day, you know, day after day after day. And I feel like I get boring because all I'm thinking about my business it, or is my business. So what, if anything, do you do to help your team maintain a sense of community and social interaction throughout the workday? Like how do you foster a team mentality? 
Well, our corporate team, so those 65, 70 folks that I mentioned, we do get together face-to-face in Metro Atlanta, um, where most of them are. Um, you know, we do circle the wagons as a team for updates, for casting vision, for team meetings. You know, our sales team might meet, or marketing team, or relationship managers. Like, they'll all have their own independent departmental meetings. And then we have corporate meetings. So we do find that it's a both-and is kind of a necessary thing. You know, for our contractors that are based anywhere in the United States, we do our best to just communicate with them and have a collaborative experience online. Um, occasionally, we'll do meetups in particular markets where we're at just to say thank you and to let them know we love them and we appreciate them. Um, but but a lot of those contractors really don't want to be our employees. They want to be contractors. So they they do appreciate kind of the 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 arm's length distance, they value us, they value our values, they agree with them and identify with them and so forth, but they're not, they're not the same as an employee. So when you look at kind of your, your team and as it evolves from maybe contractor to more W2 based or some variation of it, I think as you're building a team, it's very important to get together face to face. You do, you do get something out of that, but most people that work in our business as our corporate team, they, while they do value the face-to-face interaction, they love working from home and they prefer that because they know that they'll get, they'll get to see people from time to time, but it's more, you know, it's, it's more, um, the norm with they're working from their house. Yeah. And the other thing too, is when we hire folks, um, to work for our company, we look for people that value, um, and place a premium on working from home. You know, we're not going to go out and get that extrovert. It has to be around people every day. You know, that that's not the type of person that's going to work long term really well for, you know, a company like this. So there's several things that we're looking for to make sure that these, that folks really do value the work at home experience. Yeah. I imagine that probably helps with people sticking around as they're sort of self-selecting, you know, an extrovert probably isn't going to apply for this job. Yeah. (laughs) Yes and no. It's funny, but it depends on the role. Um, what I find it's more interesting is the, 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 um, the direction of an organization, whether they go more on-site or off-site, has everything to do with the founder's mentality. It's more of the founder's personality than anything else. Um, I've got great friends that run great companies, and they look at me and they say, there's no way in the world I could have what you have. And it's because they got to be around people all the time. And so for us, I'm just like, you know, hey, I prefer to have that autonomy, that freedom. That's why we started this company. So I'm going to create a company that's very similar to that. So it's really what the founder wants. And then the organization follows suit. Right on. So I think you and I share another, I had it written down in my questions as challenge. I don't know if it's a challenge or just a situation in that we both work with our spouse. Uh, your website says that at Blaze Solutions, out of all 700 and something, there's only two people that share an office and that's you and your wife. Yeah. Uh, my wife helps me out with bike rumor. We're both here at home. So we're working in close proximity to each other most days. How do you manage to separate work from home and personal life and keep the relationship working in both on both sides of that coin? Well, first off, probably like you guys, we love what we do. So it's pretty easy to talk about work all the time. Um, and we've just given ourselves permission that we'll do that when we need to. Um, you know, and, and there are times like where, you know, we'll be in a stressful season of the business and like we'll go on a date and I'll just say, I am not talking about work. So please don't talk to me about it. And then she respects that or vice versa. So we I think we've, we've we just give each other kind of the bandwidth to say, hey, 
game on or no, we're not talking about this. And then the other part of it too is um, something we started early on in our business out of necessity was we have a weekly meeting come hell or high water. Every single week we have a weekly meeting. Even if we're on vacation, we still have a weekly meeting to talk about the business, talk about our schedules, talk about anything that she's got to run point on uh, uh, or that I need to run point on. And um, I've just encouraged that, especially to husband and wife teams that are out there that create a standing weekly meeting that's 45 minutes to an hour and review your schedule, review mission critical things. Um, and then and then one other final thing I would say is early on um, in our business, we decided that we wanted to own our company, not run our company. So what that meant for us was we were going to go find great people resource and equip them and empower them to run the business so that we could own the business. And that was hard in the starting days, but it was something we never let go of. And today we really do that. We've got a really great CFO and COO that really run the day-to-day of the business so that my wife and I are co-CEOs. We can kind of really remain at the, uh, at the 30,000 foot view of the business, but we can go down to five feet with our leadership team anytime we need to. Right. That's actually, I want to cut you off on that just for a second, because that was actually what I wanted to close with was have you talk about that a little bit more. Sure. Um, Because I think that's a great point. And that's where a lot of entrepreneurs, especially solopreneurs, get lost in it. So if you don't mind, let's come back to that. Um, Absolutely. Let's see. I I would just, you know, to close the loop, though, on on the husband wife thing, it's a joy when you recognize that you both have skills that, um, are different than each other's and then recognizing those and getting in certain lanes and respecting those lanes. Like for me, I know kind of the lanes that she needs to run in and she's empowered to do that. And then if anything comes to me, that's hers. I defer straight to her and she's done a really good job to kind of do the same thing for me and the things in the areas of strengths for me. So there's a healthy respect there too. And the recognition of what, you know, what one person sucks at, you know, the other person's probably good at or can take ownership of. So if you haven't, I'd say anybody listening that on you know, a husband and wife team, if if you haven't kind of clarified those roles or those lanes, I'd say that's like one of the first things you got to do. Yeah, I was going to kind of ask about that, like how that dynamic came to be where, you know, there's there can obviously be some issues if one person's in charge of the other, because it's hard to, I think, get out of that mentality when you transition into like, OK, it's family dinner time to stop bossing that person around, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for us, it's always been very 50, 50, you know, like, um, I help out around the house and she helps out in the business and, you know, in significant ways. And I help, you know, like we're, we've just never seen each other as kind of like one is one is over the other We're we're partners in the effort. And, and man, I've talked to a lot of husband wife teams where the husband, um, acts like he's the boss. And when you're in a, in a relationship with your, your wife and it's when that comes out, it's ugly. I've witnessed it in other couples. And uh, for us, we just don't have that mindset. We're very much 50-50 partners in this. And so we approach our business the same way we approach our family and our and our you know the importance of our marriage. Nice. Awesome. All right, let's talk about Belay a little bit. So Belay Solutions, you guys offer virtual assistance, you offer WordPress, or, sorry, WordPress, WordPress, site maintenance and content creation, and you offer bookkeeping services. So my big top level question is what's next? Like what's the next big segment you think a virtual workforce can kind of take over and handle? Well, right now we're focused on those three. Um, we did for a season time do copywriting, but we found that um, it was a pretty saturated market and 
it was moving more towards, um, I, I don't know how to say it, more subjective understanding of what a client's needs were. And the things that we do that you kind of listed um, are more objective in nature. So it's more really clear, like when we miss the mark or when we hit the mark, it's very objective. And, you know, what we've always tried to do with Belay is support our clients as they climb higher. Um, and what that means is we're the one holding the rope, helping them climb, doing all the unfun, unsexy things that a lot of leaders hate doing. And we do it at weapons grade. So we've got really great virtual assistants that, that are gifted in the area administration. They can act as air traffic control over your inbox or oversee your calendar, manage projects that are of you know complexity. We've got great bookkeepers uh, that can you know manage uh, in a significant way, you know, millions of dollars uh, in P&Ls and reporting. Uh, and also we do payroll. And then the other one's um, truly like a virtual webmaster. We started that service, frankly, out of our own frustration. We wanted a really great webmaster for a business, but we didn't need to spend $100,000 a year on somebody that was going to play solitaire most of the time. <laughs> so we fractionalized that model and we thought, well, gee, think like our clients would probably use this service too. And that assumption turned out to be very true that a lot of folks really value having a webmaster on their team that they can call or text or be part of their team calls, but they don't have to pay for them full time. Um, in terms of what's on the horizon, um, there's there's some other very objective things that we're looking at that are you know marketing related because we got a lot of people that ask can can my assistant do things in marketing uh, we we we're looking at um, some things kind of in the legal area as well or the legal field as well um, but right now we're we're really working super hard just to remain the leader in our space in these three areas yeah I've always thought there had to be some way of offering legal advice on a sort of bite size you know just calling with a question or kind of small retainer type thing. Um, and I think there's some out there, but yeah, that to me seems like a good idea because I know I've got questions every now and then, but I don't want to have to like book a $200 an hour time with right. a local attorney, have to go to their office, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's really inefficient and it's really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're looking at kind of things like that and, and, you know, but for right now we're focused on those three services. Yeah. Cool. So I think I want to talk about these services because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that don't know what they don't know. So they may be struggling something, struggling with something or not even doing something simply because either it seems daunting or they don't know how to do it or they're just sometimes unaware of what needs to be done. And I, I need to ask a clarifying question. So the you said you guys got out of the copywriting, but are you still doing content creation for websites, just like top level content stuff? We do with, with our webmaster services. We do offer that. There's a design element connected to that service line, um, but uh, not not necessarily in the way of like you know copywriting or you know actually creating marketing speak. We we really feel like that should be hired out by the organization. Yeah, because I'm I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I actually thought about trying to outsource some of the small you know, like press release style content for bike rumor because the amount of inbound that we get every day is just, we can't get to it all. Sure. And I tried having a non-cyclist contract or write short blurbs for us, just, you know, starting out just like post stuff on social and reshare some of our best content each week, eat content each week and they just didn't get it, right? Like they, they yeah. weren't a cyclist, so they couldn't talk the talk and I ended up spending more time editing it than if I had just written it myself. So I sort of scrapped that idea. And I feel like maybe that's what you were getting at with the copywriting stuff is when you need to get really technical and understand an industry, 
that's probably better for a specialist. But you know, just looking exactly at right. Belay's website, yeah. So I was looking at your website, and I'm thinking to myself, like, man, like this is. I hope you don't take offense to this, but the the blog on Belay Solutions this is kind of like it's almost written for SEO to drive people in that are looking for WordPress sites and um, virtual assistants and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that's the type of content you guys can do for people, which, you know, if you were a lawyer, you'd do like the 10 things you need to watch out for in 2019, like that kind of copy. That's exactly right. I mean, we're, you know, for us, um, you know, we want to put out meaningful content, but we also needed to bring in that new business for us. And most of our clients want that as well. So that's, you know, that, but frankly, the domain expertise of a writer is something that becomes subjective in nature. And so we always just, you know, we, we kind of got to a place where our, with our clients where, you know, they, they wanted something more than I think our service could put out there from a content writing standpoint. We, we encouraged them to look at a different place for content writers, though, um, you know, a lot of our assistants, frankly, are really great writers in their own way. We just don't promise that as a service anymore. Right. For bookkeeping, what type of services do you offer and what type of small business or I guess maybe even like medium businesses yeah. would need that yeah. as opposed to like having an account, like at what point do you need to just push it off to an accountant or even bring in a full-time accountant? I think it's, there's a, I think it's important to differentiate the difference between a bookkeeper and accountant. Essentially a bookkeeper oversees and manages the books and the transactions and does the reconciliations An accountant interprets financials. So that's what we're not. We do not interpret financials. We don't offer tax advice. We're not going to audit the books. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to give you what we think are the, your next steps from a tax strategy standpoint. However, you'll have the most weapons grade books you've ever had. They'll be nice and tight, reconciled, monthly financials, reports that look like the way they want, chart of accounts that look the right way, payroll that's not messy. You know, think about all the, the things you have to do from a bookkeeping standpoint. That's what we do. And then you still need a CPA to help you interpret your financials, um, especially if you're a small business. Now we, we work with small business. We also work with nonprofits. We also work with large business as well, where they don't, where they have a large accounting team or a bookkeeping team and they need to augment maybe AR or AP. Um, we can place people to work in a specific way for larger organizations as so you, well. So you could help a small business say, you know, get their invoices out on time. Just Absolutely. or even a solo entrepreneur, like, like invoicing people takes a lot of time. It's kind of a pain in the butt. They yeah. don't get paid if you don't do it. That's right. And then, you know, where we kind of draw the line with that is, you know, listen, we'll help you try and collect, but we're not a collections agency. In fact, we've got we've got great companies that we recommend if you know you're 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 super late on your bills, you know, getting paid. But yeah, we can we invoice. You know, we post to journal entries. We have a great audit record, audit trail. Um, we produce. You know. Frankly, we we work with a lot of small businesses and we'll produce financials for them and they'll go, what is the balance state? I mean, what's a balance sheet? So our team will actually educate them and train them on that stuff, which is great. It's really it's really cool to see the financial wherewithal of a, of a small business owner grow when we work and come alongside them. And they say, oh, this is what cash flow means. This is this is why um, a balance sheet should be balanced. That's why the numbers are equal, you know, and like just teaching them things about budget to actual it's. And our team does that because not only do you get a bookkeeper with our service or a, an assistant or a webmaster, you also get someone that's assigned to work with you from our part of the business as a relationship manager. So we oversee the relationship with you as well. And they're assigned to work with you. So they're kind of your coach or your trusted advisor in addition to your bookkeeper or your, your virtual assistant. 
Okay. Well, let's talk about the virtual assistant because that's kind of the big one. I think as entrepreneurs, what should we be delegating to an assistant? Everything that's low payoff to you, whatever that is. Um, Give me an example or a couple of examples. Well, you got to figure out what your time is worth. So that's that's step one in this. If you go out and you say, okay, I want to get paid X or I get paid X, multiply or excuse me, divide that by, you know, 20, 2040 or 2080, depending on however formula you want. And that comes up with your per hour rate. Whatever that is, if your stuff that you're doing is less than that in value or time, then it's time to delegate that. Now, that's a really simple way to look at things to offload. I like to also add in the filter of the things that you love doing that really only you can do. You need to keep those things because those are probably the one to three things that are really going to help accelerate your business or your organization. Um, and then the things that you know you hate to do that you know others can be doing, then you need to offload those as quick as humanly possible. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, that's the stuff that we offer. You know, they don't like managing their email. They don't like managing the back and forth for calendars or for meetings. They don't, they don't like managing project complexities or seeing stuff through, um, like all the minutia. Uh, they don't like reconciling bank statements or expense reports. They hate that stuff. And so we take on that stuff with our great people, um, and, and, and serve our clients in that capacity. Okay. What are some of the best ways to delegate? Where should somebody start? Well, I think, I think one of the things, one of the exercises I tell people when we talk about delegation in, in general is that they need to go to somewhere quiet that's not their office and just start writing down all the things that they do in a given week. And then literally start to kind of put a number next to each one in terms of the things that they would offload to someone else. And it, it's, it's like a 10 minute exercise. And then the other thing to do is to look at that list and then start to filter between the things that you love doing and the things you hate doing. And more than likely, if like every time I've done this with a group of people when I'm trained on this, the things that you love doing is about 10% of that list. So then the, the things that you hate doing are the other 90. And so what you find is there's actually people out there crazy enough that love doing the things that you hate and they're really good at it. And I, um, personally, for me, and I've seen it in so many other companies, you know, nothing really great only stays with one person. So you, you got to, you know, if you're going to grow something of meaning of something of size, it's going to it's going to require you to work with more people than yourself. So you just got to start to appropriately offload those things, whether that's with a, you know, a company like ours or internally when you hire your own staff, you know, or some variation thereof. Yeah. And you guys actually have a worksheet people can print off from your website, right? They kind of like That's right. has little yeah. boxes to say, here's the things you like, the things you don't like, blah, blah, blah. And a few different options. It helps kind of get it in front of you where you can process what you need to do. And yeah, it helped me. I printed it off and did it too. And it gave me some ideas. I'll tell you the other thing that I don't know if it helped or hurt. I think it did both is I actually <laughs> kept a timesheet for like two weeks every day in like 15 minute increments. And I actually found out that at the end of those two weeks, I had worked more each day. I was hoping it would help me work less because I'd realized real quickly as I was writing it down every 15 or 30 minutes what I was doing, whether or not it was a waste of time. But I ended up doing, I was super productive, but I just kept like every slot on that sheet. I did it up to like 6 p.m. just to see, like I ended up working until 6 p.m. And my goal is to kind of kick off at three every day. But sure. But it did highlight where I was probably wasting some time and it almost forced me to stop doing the little stuff and the world didn't end. So I'd say 
you know, people could try that as well. Yeah, that's a great, that's a, um, anytime inside our company when we have a person that's like talking about their time and how they're, they just can't seem to get caught up. We have them do a time audit. We literally do. And it's amazing. The aha moments that come out of a time audit in most cases, you know, I, I, I highly recommend that and good for you for even doing that. A lot of people resist that with everything in them. So it's cool that you actually did that. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> maybe, maybe work harder. So I stopped doing it <laughs> or work, work longer. I shouldn't say harder. I was probably working yeah. smarter, but more hours. Um, what are some of the best methods of communication with a virtual assistant? I mean, we use, you know, there's obviously Skype and Slack and email and instant message and all that stuff. Um, what, what do you recommend or what seems to be working best for some of your clients? Well, I'll tell you the best clients that we have are the ones that don't look at their, assist, their assistant as an assistant. They actually look at them as a work alongside partner. They actually respect them and they say, look, you're an extension of who I am. So I'm going to, I'm going to be as communicative with you as I would hope that you'd be with me. And we're going to work together as a team, as an equal, because you're, you serve as an extension of who I am. And I, internally, I'm going to pave the gate for you internally with my team. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pave the way with anybody that's in my network that would need to know you. And those are the clients that really, um, develop meaningful connections working with a virtual assistant and they're highly productive. I do that. Um, we just went through a season where my assistant Paige, who I, she took a new role in our company, which I'm super excited about, but I'm also after working with her for six years, I'm starting over with a new assistant. And one of the first things I did right out of the gate was I let her know that she's an extension of who I am. Meaning if, if she's calling on my behalf, that's as if I am. And so you've, you've got to kind of create that level of respect and let them know that they're an extension of who you are and that you're partnering together and not just my assistant. And I think that's one of the first steps in a very successful relationship with an assistant is to raise up their understanding of who they are and how they represent you. The next thing, um, I just assume that I'm working with adults and <laughs> my clients do as well. And I give them that and I just say, hey, listen. Instead of me telling you all the tasks, all the nitty gritty, I'm going to tell you what I need done. I, this is, I'm going to tell you the result. So what I'm actually doing is I'm delegating results, not tasks. So what I'll say is, hey, I need to be in Charleston in a couple of weeks. Here's the event. You know, you basically take care of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm delegating a result. What I find with when you're working with a really great qualified adult is that they'll take that and run with it. And they'll do a better job than if you give them the 55 things that equal the result. So it's a mind shift for a lot of leaders because most leaders I know, and they'll admit this to me, is they, they've had assistance before or they've tried it, but they've never known how to really work with one and how to delegate to an adult that actually knows what they're doing. So it's, it's truly a thing of communicating the result. And then there's something also very powerful in letting them know the why, or the, the why behind what we're doing. Like, you know, hey, Hope, that's my new assistant. Hope, the reason why we're doing this is because of this. And the reason why you want to give the why more than the what is because when you're not around, if she has the why, then she can fill in the blank when you're not around. If she doesn't know the why for why she's doing something, she can't fill in the blank. She'll try. And then it ticks off a leader, lot of leaders because they're like, well, why didn't you do this? Well, because they didn't know the end game. And so we train and we, we try and help our, the clients to come in. They're looking for, you know, they're really great high capacity leaders. We try and retrain them or encourage them to consider that there's a better way to operate working with an assistant. Yeah, that's no, I like that a lot. Cause it's, 
Um, I've heard that before and I try and do that with my writers is empower them to make decisions on their own. And yeah, definitely the why is there uh, for the reasons you just stated. Um, you know, you said you switched assistants recently and that's actually one of the fears that I've had with one for a long time. And I did, I just got a virtual assistant a few months ago. She's awesome. Um, but forever I was thinking, okay, I look at what's happened with bike rumor and the writers. So we get a lot of people that want to write for bike rumor. They're thinking they're just, Oh, I'll get some free bikes and free components. I'll write a couple of paragraphs and get to travel around the world on press launches. Cause that's what these yeah. guys do. And then I send them a writer's guide and I set up their email addresses, set up a WordPress login, answer a bunch of questions. Basically, I'm spending about a day's total worth of time over a week or so getting them up to speed. And then it's literally crickets. I've had people I've done this for that produced zero. Yeah. And so my fear in hiring a virtual assistant was investing all these days and weeks getting somebody fully integrated into my email and calendar and everything else. And then that person bails in like a week or a month or something. I guess start over. So are there some tells that people should look for when evaluating assistants or firms so that they won't have to go through training somebody new every few months? Yeah. I mean, as much as I'd love to say that, you know, all of our assistants stay forever, that's just not the case. In fact, most employees in every company and every part of the world always have a tendency to jump or move to something else, especially in a white hot economy like right now. So assistants move around just as much as a mid-level manager does working for Coca-Cola. You know what I mean? It's just the way it is right now. I'd say that it's it's in how you set expectations. You know, this is what we're looking for. Um, you know, we're looking for something that's a bit more long term. Can you commit to that? You know, I would be asking questions around that. We have to do the same thing. We let them know that, look, this is a viable work from home option. Um, we're looking for people that are committed to sticking and working with their clients long term, multiple years. If you're seeing this as just a, a stopgap or you know, just a, a temporary mandate in your income solution, that's probably not going to be the right fit for us. You know, so you just kind of have to communicate your expectations for things like that. And, you know, and frankly, hope that they're telling you the truth. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that's what they want as well. You know, we've had it happen where they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And then they get a job offer the next day and they jump ship. So, I, you know, you, you got to do your part to communicate the expectation, but they also got to live up to their word as well. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so another one of my fears is trust. You know, basically when we're hiring an assistant, we're trusting somebody that we may not have and maybe never will actually meet face-to-face. -face. Yeah. And we're trusting them with access to our email, our social media accounts, scheduling, credit cards, travel plans. Basically, these people are going to know everything that we're doing. So, yeah. like, how do you come to terms with that and relinquish control? Especially, and I say that especially as an entrepreneur who has a really hard time letting go of control because, like, this is my baby, right? Like I made this company sure. and I don't want somebody else screwing it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say that it depends on how you look at the world. You know, I look at the world through the lens of most people are good, not bad. I look at um, opportunity in terms of abundance where, you know, there's plenty of opportunity out there for everybody. So I, I, I always, um, I, I, I guess I've always operated from the lens of I'm going to trust people um, and it, and I don't think it's naive. I used to think maybe it was, but now I'm starting to realize that people value trust. And when they feel trusted, the company or the organization moves quicker. And so for me, um, I've communicate, look, I trust you. You're here for a reason. You're going to do meaningful work, like stuff that's really helping people provide jobs. Um, you're creating income for families around the country. You're serving great leaders, doing some really cool things in this world. I trust you to help us carry that forward. 
And I, I have, I literally talk like that when I'm in front of my employees, like, um, and our contractors that, you know, Hey, you represent us. I may not ever for personally meet you face to face, but I'm giving you a lot of trust to serve our clients with the utmost respect and work hard. Um, and, and, um, you kind of got to lose sight. I don't know what, I don't know how to quite help you in the sense of like, this is your baby. I get that. But at the end of the day, one day that won't be your baby. You know what I mean? You're, you're here for a season of time to do the things that you're doing now, but it won't be like that forever. So if that's true, then you're to steward the role of the organization that you're, you know, for now, as best you possibly can. And stewardship, all it means is this, is that you're responsible for a season of time for what you're doing. And when you realize that you're responsible for a season of time, you realize that you kind of hold on to an organization more loosely and you let other people kind of help run it because it really isn't your baby per se. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I would say, I would add to that from a skeptic's point of view, not necessarily me as a skeptic. I, I do try and, and I won't say try. I do think that people are inherently good. The vast majority are for sure. Um, but for somebody looking at this like, ah, I still don't know, uh, you know, a couple of things that help me with the assistant I have to, is I ease into it, right? Like I, you know, we started with some small stuff and then a little bit more and a little bit more and it kind of, we we're growing and there's still, you know, we're still growing. Like she has access to some of our email for bike rumor and I'm, I'm growing that cause I want her to take over my personal inbox as well. Um, and, but also she came recommended by somebody that I know and trust. And I think you guys provide that role as belay because presumably you vet these people ahead of time. I don't know. Do you do background checks? Like how do you, how do you ensure that the people you're bringing on as personal assistants are, you know, good people? Well, we qualify them like crazy. I mean, first off we we're, we're fortunate to have a ton of people that want to work here. So we get to pick the best of the best and our uh, vetting process is grueling. It's very thorough and they do video interviews. We test them. We throw um, curveball questions at them. We're looking at things that they don't even realize we're looking at with our talent acquisition team because uh, we want the best of the best to represent our clients. Um, I, I'm not going to share what we actually do because that's part of why we're so successful and we don't want our competitors to know that. Uh, but bottom line, over eight years, we figured out how to find really great people through our talent ac acquisition process. And part of it starts with creating a really great funnel of a bunch of people that want to try and work here. Um, but the other, the, to answer your question directly, if a client wants a background check, we'll do a background check. If they want a disc profile or any enneagram or whatever it is, we'll do that. That's no problem. We, um, but we feel like we get at the nature of the character of the person that wants to work for us through the system we've developed. We don't even need the background check. But we'll do that, especially if they need that for insurance purposes or it's sort of some, you know, some corporate policy that they have. But, you know, by the time we get to a place where we're going to contract with these people, we know these people pretty darn well. Cool. OK. And then for somebody that's looking to bring on a virtual assistant and get them ingrained in, and taking over all these duties, how long does it really take to get somebody up to speed to where they're able to do all of these things for you? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's about 90 days before you actually truly feel like you're finding the relief that you're looking for. Anybody that tells you different is not telling you the truth. I mean, it's just it's 90 days. It's a commitment. It's like no other, it's like another employee 
that you'd hire in your organization to work in. It's it, there's an onboarding season of time where you're offloading stuff to this person. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they're pulling stuff off their own plate. And it's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm going to hand this over to somebody. So they're going to be a little bit slower in doing that and make sure it's done right. Um, but I, I'd say give it 90 days. The other thing too, is that you, you know, we do this with our clients, but we help identify what's mission critical in the offloading process versus the nice to haves. So, you know, if, if, if whether you're, you know, a person listening to this was working with our company, uh, using our services or someone else, or they hire someone internally, it's important to identify what's mission critical and the, and, and delegating to them. And then the nice to haves, you know, in a secondary way, it's very important because you won't feel the relief if you start with the nice to haves first. So let me tell you something I'm doing that tends to help is these things that I'm delegating off, right? Like I've, I've been doing so much of it myself for so many years that I have a process that works really well for me. And it's not that I don't trust somebody else to figure it out. But what I found is it speeds up the process if I can say, here's what I need done. Here's how I've done it. And so I create, I've got so many Google Docs of like, basically it's like a workflow and a process. Say, you know, like step one, step two, step three. And I share these documents with them that they're welcome to comment on and nothing set in stone, but at least it, I feel like that gets us from zero to 60 pretty quickly. And then 60 to a hundred, you know, we get there when we get there, but it, it's, are there tools like that, that you guys use that you give to a client and say, okay, like, here's what, you know, what you need done. Can you outline your process or something like that? Or, or any yeah. other tools that people that you provide to help get, accelerate that process. It does. It does help when a leader has thought through kind of that already, you know, or if it's already kind of in place inside the organization that, that does help. Um, some really simple tools that we encourage our clients to use, um, is loom, which is basically, or gene, gene videos. If you're familiar with that, where it's basically you're capturing the screenshots or video and talking about, Hey, this is how I do it. The cool thing too, I think you'll find that you'll have greater adoption quicker towards that delegate, that point, that, that result or that thing you're delegating. If you can say like, listen, this is how I've done it. But if you find a better, faster way, go for it. Just let me know what that process is. And it gives them freedom to maybe find a different way to do that. And that, nine times out of 10, there is a better, faster way to do it. You just aren't aware of it. And you've been doing it this way because it's the way you know. Uh, but Loom or Jing uh, is a really great tool we use and we encourage our clients to do. Um, you know, in terms of kind of bringing people up to speed, there's really great. If you've never kind of documented the system, the process, the workflow instructions inside your organization, um, sweet process is a really great application for that to kind of document that stuff. Um, and we, we certainly, um, love it when a client comes in and goes, Oh yeah, I've already thought this through and here's the methodology behind it. We just need somebody to come in and help implement. Awesome. So, so zoom gene and sweet process. No, um, it's, Jing, um, J-I-N-G is the first one. It's a video um, screen capture. And then the same one, it's a different company called Loom, L-O-O-M. Okay. And then the final one is Sweet Process. That's the one that where you can really document thoroughly your system processes and work instructions. Right on. Yeah. And I think if you've got a Mac, QuickTime can even do that now too. You just turn on record and it'll record everything you're doing really? on your screen. Yeah. I didn't know that. Huh. Uh, it's, I don't know how long it's done that, but I know in the latest OS it does for sure. Because um, I've, I've used it for doing some stuff like that too. It's pretty awesome. Interesting. Um, you know, what I think 
these doing these these process writing down the process it also forces you to sort of examine how you've done it and and think through if there's ways to do it better as well but um it's the struggle I find is it's kind of like the entrepreneur's dilemma, right? Like if you've been doing or anybody's dilemma, you've been doing this for so long or it's like trying to raise children, right? Like it's quicker and easier to just do it yourself, but you don't nothing. Then you're always stuck doing it yourself. And so I've literally for the past month, I feel like all I've been doing is creating guides and processes and workflow sheets, trying to delegate more and more, but it's really time intensive and you almost have to like drop everything else you're doing to create these but once it's done, then it frees you up. And so my, you know, my advice to add to all this is like, just realize you've got to do this. You've got to take the time and do it. Even though for me, I feel like if I'm not producing content on bike rumor, I'm not really working. And yet I'm busy all day creating these workflows. So it's, yeah, I, I would tell you, I would um, doubly add to what you're saying. I think it's totally worth it. It just doesn't feel like it to an entrepreneur that took all the risk to start something. Yeah, because what was it? You're at a different stage in the business. Yeah. Business mandates that you do things like this now so that you can get back to the things that only you can do. You know, and and so that's that's the thing I would tell you. There's a really great book. I I always tell entrepreneurs to read. I love this book. I read it early on in our business and I made my leadership team read it. It's called Predictable Success. And a guy named Les McGowan. And it's a really great read on the stages of a business from startup to dying and what they have to do to basically get through early struggle and then the next stage of fun. Um, and then they basically move into this the next stage after fun is called whitewater where you basically got to figure stuff out and do with the things that you're talking about right now to get to a place of called predictable success. And anytime like you go to the next stage of growth in your business, the, the nature is to not go back in the whitewater. But the, the problem with going not not in the whitewater is you basically start moving your company towards death if you don't decide to reinvent it, invent itself and really kind of think through the things that have to be done day to day. It's an awesome read. I totally recommend the book to entrepreneurs. Cool. Well, I will put a link to that yeah. and the other tools that you mentioned in the show notes for this, as well as the links to your books. You have a couple of books that dive deeper into the use of virtual assistants in growing your company as well, right? Yeah, I wrote a book not too long ago. It released um, last year called um, Virtual Culture. The way we work doesn't work anymore. And it's basically our story of how we started our company and the things we do internally to create a virtual company. Um, I would tell you um, rather quickly that it's our playbook. It's not the playbook. There's plenty of companies doing great things from a remote standpoint. But um, after winning the award from Entrepreneur Magazine for Top Company Culture, um, a lot of people ask, how in the world did you do this without an office? And I quickly came to the realization that culture is not an office. Uh, culture is a shared vision. And, and that's exactly what we work to create at Belay. So the book Virtual Culture is all about that. Um, I wrote, uh, I co-wrote a book with Michael Hyatt um, back in 2013. If you're looking for a really practical read, uh, it's an ebook called The Virtual Assistant Solution. Um, I'd encourage you to read that. And then my wife wrote a book um, really targeted towards um, – stay-at-home moms that want to actually maintain their career. It's called The Third Option. It's a really great read as well. And it's actually helped a lot of, um, you know, parents, you know, specifically stay-at-home moms realize that they can actually do both. They can actually maintain a career and, and have a really meaningful connection with their kids as they're growing as well without really sacrificing a whole lot. And I witnessed it over the course of the time that our kids were growing and my wife did this. Um, it's a really great read. It's called The Third Option. And presumably it works for stay-at-home dads as well. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and frankly, I'll tell you another group of people that I've been surprised, and I think it's super cool. It's um, kids with parents that are aging, huh. and they have to stay home with their parents. It's a it's a really it's really rewarding to see those uh, people working for our organization because they got to take care of mom and dad now. Right. Yeah, and that's probably going to be a growing audience sizes because people are living longer, but not that generation was not necessarily living healthier. They were just living longer thanks to you know all the medical advances and stuff. Yeah, it's incredibly rewarding when we. I mean. First off, these folks are, you know, some of them are in their 50s or 60s. They're really experienced, qualified people, but they've got to be really near mom and dad to help take care of them. And, you know, they are, they, I mean, they're awesome people. They just can't go work in an office. And so we, it's been a joy to, to actually uncover that part of our workforce as well. Very cool. So let's get on to that last question to pick up where we left off way earlier in the episode. My last question for every guest is typically, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs looking to do something similar to what you're doing? But in this case, I'm hoping you can send us off with your thoughts on what we're talking about, which is, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically position yourself so you own the company and it doesn't own you. Yes, that that mantra um, has been one of the most defining mantras in our business when we when we have it internally we could just call it own not run and and what it it what it does is it informs most of the decisions we make day to day in our business my wife and i will say is this something that makes us run the company or is this something that makes us own the company and most times it's around people these days because we've grown and we've scaled our business up but in the early days, it was very important, too, because we thought, OK, well, if we're going to own the company, we're going to need to go get a part time person to oversee this part of what we're doing, because that's all we could afford at the time. And something interesting happens in a business when you when you I don't know, like it really depends on the business and the industry and what you do. But it's somewhere around seven to ten people. What happens is the owners of the company, they start to realize that this thing's kind of got a life of its own. And they move from what I call being a general practitioner to a specialist. And I can tell you after talking to multiple companies that kind of get to that specialist stage, myself included, that getting to that specialist stage, the stage where people have like the thing that they're responsible to do, it's an inflection point in the business. Our business took off because the focus was there for the particular role. And everybody's not doing five, six things. They're doing one thing really, really well or two things, maybe tops. And so that was another that was another decision that, that got us there quickly is because rather than take it on and say, OK, I'll do it on the owner. I'll suck it up. I'll work 80 hours a week. We thought, no, we're going to segment this out. We're going to create really great results around this role and we're going to hire a really great person to take responsibility for it. And it's a different mindset. It's more of an owning mindset than a running mindset. It's this notion that we're better when we can find great people. They're better than us to run aspects of our business because I'll stay focused on the things that only I can do as the owner or as the founder of the company. And it's 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 hard when you're one or two people to understand that or to see that when you know you can barely pay the bill for your SEO or whatever. I get that. But if you can keep going and, you know, over time, incrementally give up portions of what you do to others and then they swallow the hook on what you love and what you care about and the thing that you dreamed about building and they can get, cap, uh, you know, capture that in their heart and then in, in their head, something magnetic takes off in your business and it's an inflection point for growth. But it's it starts with deciding even before you can do it, you're going to own the business, 
not run the business. Yeah, it sounds like just kind of keep a running list of even when you're first starting out, say here's the things, you know, here's the things I'm doing and then check put a check next to the ones that somebody else could do and as you're able to afford somebody to do that, then make that commitment and delegate and get it off your plate. Yeah, like I said, that's some of the, the most of the greatest things on this planet that companies achieve or businesses achieve took more than one person. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, Brian, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Likewise, I want to say thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate, you know, first off, um, I love it when um, I'm interacting with folks and they're prepared. That means a ton to me. So I, I just want to say thank you for that. And I, and I, um, I appreciate this opportunity too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I appreciate your time, man. It was, it was great learning. <laughs> I feel like this is going to add a lot of value to people because it's always something I've struggled with for, you know, really almost two decades now is how to let go of some responsibilities. And so even if somebody doesn't hire an assistant, they're bringing on just people to work under them. I think there's a lot of value here. So thanks. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Thank you. I take a lot of comfort in Brian's comments that, as founders, our role in the company and the type of work we need to be doing will change as the company grows. I really struggle emotionally to set aside the time to create my process documents, even though I know doing so is the only way my company will grow. The big takeaway for me is that I need to empower others to do the work I've been doing for so long. The processes and instruction sheets will help with that, but the other part of it is explaining why we do what we do. It doesn't matter if you're delegating tasks to your employees or offloading some of the smaller stuff to an assistant. The process for you is the same. Let them know how you've done it, let them know why they're doing it, and tell them the end result you want. If you've done a good job recruiting the right people, chances are they'll surprise you and oftentimes do those things better than you ever could. All of which frees you up to do the things you want to do. It's like working out. Sometimes it's not fun, but you know it'll make you better in the future. I've put a ton of links on this episode's show notes. Find them all at thebuildcycle.com slash podcast, including a discount code for $200 off if you sign up for any virtual service or assistant from Belay Solutions. I encourage you to download their free guide to offloading, if only to think through the little things you could easily outsource. Here's hoping you're owning, not running. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.